again. Psalm 143, we have another Psalm of David. And David here says, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. And in your faithfulness, answer me. And in your righteousness, do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no one living is righteous. For the enemy has persecuted my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me dwell in darkness like those who have long been dead. Therefore, my spirit is overwhelmed within me. My heart within me is distressed. Again, aren't we so thankful that David, as he took the pen and let the Holy Spirit guide his recorded words here, was always just so honest. He was so direct in regards to not only what his experiences were that allow us to connect with the hardships and difficulties that we go through, things like people persecuting us, our lives being crushed by other people, feeling like that we're in a season maybe of darkness. He describes verse 4 there, his spirit and his heart being overwhelmed, feeling distressed inside, and how we can so associate with just these realities. David was a man after God's own heart. He loved the Lord. It didn't make him immune to life's hardships. It didn't make him immune to uh, mental frustration or struggles or difficulties and his thoughts and feelings from time to time. And so it allows us to recognize that those are all normal, natural part of our experience as well, even as God's people. Uh, the wonderful thing is that we know that we can turn to the Lord in the midst of the things that we go through and that we don't have to navigate them in our own strength or try and figure things out on our own or necessarily take matters into our own hand and scheme or strive to bring things to pass, but instead that we have a, an all-powerful and an almighty God that we can cry out to for his intervention. And that's what David is is doing here. We can see once again in this psalm, as he says there in verse 1, Lord, please, he says, hear my prayer, give ear, pay attention, Lord, give heed, please. He's asking, Lord, awaken to my supplications. And notice that he bases his prayer on understanding the character of God. You notice there in verse 1, he's asking the Lord to hear his prayer and to give ear to his requests and he says, Lord, answer me under this basis, your faithfulness and your righteousness. Lord, because I know, as Lamentations tells us, chapter 3, great is God's faithfulness. And because we know that God is righteous, we're going to see later on in our study here in our verses, that, that all the Lord's ways are righteous and that we know that he always does what is right, especially for his people. And because he is a righteous God, that's his character and his basis, He's never going to do what's wrong. He's never going to have an off day. He's always going to be just and true and righteous in all of his dealings. And because we know that is true about God, that he's a righteous God, and that we also know that great is his faithfulness, that becomes the basis in which we approach him in prayer, that we realize that we are speaking to one who is completely righteous, all-powerful, and great in his faithfulness to help us, to keep his promises to us, to come to our aid as his children and his servants when we ask him to answer and help in our situations. 
And he says, verse 2 there, however, Lord, he says, do not enter into judgment with your servant. In other words, Lord, be, be merciful to me. I know that though you are righteous and that you are always faithful, David understood that he was certainly not on equal ground with God, that there were times when he was clearly unrighteous. And as we've seen in David's life, there are times when he was unfaithful to the Lord. So he says, Lord, I'm not approaching you on my own merit. I'm approaching you on the basis of who you are because of your character, because of your nature being righteous and faithful. He says, because my merit isn't much to measure up with. It only really, in a sense, uh, requires judgment from you because he says, verse 2, therefore, in your sight, God, the all-seeing God, no one living is righteous. David declares there this important doctrinal reality of what we would just call the depravity of man which simply means that we are from birth depraved morally, spiritually, that we are inclined towards doing what is wrong, that we have a bent within to do what's sinful and not what's right or righteous, that we inherited that from birth. Every one of us can trace our descendancy all the way back to the first two original human beings on the planet, and all they could pass on to us was what they possessed, which was physical life, but a spiritual dead nature that was not in relationship with God and an inherent sin nature. That's all we could inherit from them spiritually. So because of that, we are born sinful, and we just prove that as we begin to err and sin and make mistakes in our life. And the Bible says there is no difference, Romans 3. We all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. Not one of us meets the standard. No one is ultimately completely righteous in the sight of the Lord. And that's what Paul builds in that whole chapter of Romans chapter 3 where he talks about how even if we seek to try and make ourselves righteous, behave righteously, he says, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may be guilty before God, for by the deeds of the law, that is even by trying to keep God's moral law, he says, no flesh will be justified, the idea is made just and righteous in God's sight, for by the law is nothing other than the knowledge of sin. In other words, God's law doesn't help us become righteous, it reveals that no one is righteous. It reveals the standard that God requires of holy, righteous perfection as being an almighty, pure, and righteous, and holy God, and that none of us measure up to that. And so David understood this level ground, this reality. God, no one in your sight that's living is righteous in and of themselves inherently. We can never approach God based off our own worth or merit or, Lord, because of my righteousness, I'm hoping you'll answer me, or I'm hoping you're going to answer this prayer Again, certainly we understand from a New Testament perspective that the benefit of being in Christ relationally is that God not only removes our sin, but he imputes to us or puts into our spiritual bank account the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The, the Bible tells us that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him relationally. So there is a spiritual righteousness, the righteousness of God that we receive, which gives us the freedom and access to go directly into the presence of God. That's the wonderful New Testament reality on the other side of the cross and resurrection, that we can come boldly into God's presence, that temple veil that once existed to show unrighteous man, as David understood. You can't go into God's presence in your unrighteous condition 
that now we can have direct access, but not through our own righteousness. It's through the righteousness of Jesus that we have this confidence that we can come in his righteousness, understanding that in God's sight, no one living is righteous. There's level ground. And that's so important for us to understand because that helps us not to get into this mental game of thinking somehow that if we've lived more righteously, that somehow God is more interested in answering our prayers. Or if somehow we're living more righteous than someone else, or if we really want God to answer a particular prayer, then, then that's what it is. We, we just have to start behaving, and, and, and maybe if we can get a little better standard of righteousness as somehow that kind of pushes the edge and, and the, the, the scale tips, almost as if we're like bribing God in some way. David says, no, the basis of God, you hearing me and answering me, he says, is your righteousness and your faithfulness. It's never about my righteousness. I don't deserve anything. Again, understanding that anything God does for us, it's grace, it's his kindness, and that helps us so that we're not condemning ourselves or thinking we're having to work to get God to answer us. God answers us because he's loving, because he's kind, because he's gracious. And he answers us all the more when we come to him through the person of his son, Jesus Christ, trusting in his righteousness given to us that gives us that access to God. Verse 3, he says, for the enemy has persecuted my soul. Now, what is to persecute? It is to, to treat harmfully or wrongfully, whether that's in verbal abuse or things that are said that are slanderous accusations or whether it's physical mistreatment, persecution can come in many different ways. And perhaps this is why David is recollecting, Lord, no one is righteous in your sight because perhaps the enemy that was persecuting his soul and crushing his life to the ground and verse three, making him dwell in darkness like those who had long been dead. Perhaps it was his enemy that was constantly beating him up and reminding him of that. David, you... Do you remember that Bathsheba thing? Who do you remember what you did to her husband? And and David, the lies and the cover up and and perhaps just, you know, reminding David again, we understand, you know, human beings can be cruel. And so whether it was that issue from David's past that was unfortunately public knowledge that no doubt he had to live with the reality of that even though he understood the forgiveness of the Lord. And that can indeed be a difficult thing. See, the reality that we forget a lot of times, no one living is righteous in God's sight, verse 2 says, and the Bible says that everything is laid naked and bare before the eyes of the Lord to whom we have to give account. God sees everything, which means God has seen every one of my sins from my first breath. Every time I thought something I shouldn't have thought, you may not have seen it, but God saw it. Every time we said something that we shouldn't have said or didn't say something, a sin of omission that we should have said, every time we did something in practice or behavior that was wrong or sinful, God sees everything. See, the difference is sometimes some people's sins are made public, though, before other people. And the tragedy is, is when our sins, sadly, some of us, our sins just because of the nature and the dynamics, they become public before other people, and people are nasty. Because unlike God, they'll continue to rub it in your face forever. And that's something that we need to remember sometimes as people is sometimes the difference between us and somebody else, the only difference is, is perhaps you were blessed, nobody made your sin public. By the grace of God, you didn't have the unfortunate experience where yours got broadcast. But God sees it all. 
And perhaps the enemy of David was persecuting him in the sense of, again, condemning and beating him up and, you know, making him feel miserable and crushed within. And this is why perhaps as he's approaching God, he's saying, Lord, I, he's persecuting me, but Lord, I, I know that no one living in your sight is righteous. And Lord, I need your help for your mercy's sake. And, and please, Lord, just help me. I'm being crushed. My enemy is persecuting my soul. And it is interesting, enemy no doubt, perhaps in a literal sense for David, but who's the ultimate enemy behind all of that, even when it comes in a human form? It's the enemy of our soul. And right, the Bible tells us uh, many times over, Zechariah chapter 3 refers to the devil uh, there standing in opposition to Joshua, the high priest, to oppose and to accuse him pointing out his filthy garments that he had on. The idea is the filthy condition of his spiritual nature before God. The Bible tells us in Revelation that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. So we know who the ultimate enemy is, and that's what he does. He accuses us, he reminds us, he persecutes us, makes us feel miserable about ourselves to try and get our heart to condemn us and crush our spirit and so forth. And perhaps to some degree, David's wrestling through this. Whatever he's under, he says, verse 4, he describes the condition. He says, my spirit is overwhelmed within me and my heart within me is distressed. So his spirit and his heart, David says two things, is overwhelmed and we know what that's like from time to time, to just feel overwhelmed. The idea is just, it's beyond what I can handle. I just, this is completely over my head. I am just overwhelmed. I, I'm struggling to keep my head above water. I am sinking, and I don't know how to, I don't even know how to bring it back together. I'm just overwhelmed. And we've all experienced that, perhaps from time to time, circumstantially and emotionally, the effects of being overwhelmed internally and all that goes with that. And then he says also within that he was feeling distressed. And that word distress means to experience extreme anxiety over impending danger. The idea is distressed is, is you're feeling incredibly anxious and somewhat overwhelmed because you can see something that's not looking good out in front of you. Maybe it's the impending danger of not being able to pay bills and make it financially, or the impending danger of, of you just have no idea how this is going to work out without being a catastrophe on the other side, and, and, and just feeling distress, that fear and stress and anxiety over looming danger or impending difficulties in front of you. And David was dealing with that. And again, thank you for your honesty, David. Because from time to time, we can read verse 4 and say, wow, that's it right there, Lord. That's exactly what I'm feeling like. That's exactly what I'm going through. Look what one of the things that David did in verse 5. He says, I remember the days of old. So David, it's almost as if he said, I'm feeling overwhelmed and distressed and like I'm getting into a dark place here. And he says, rather than just keep my focus right here, Maybe I need to put my, my attention, my focus somewhere else. And David now takes a little tour of reflection. He says, I remember the days of old. So he thinks back to a prior time where he could, verse 5, he says, meditate on all God's works and muse on the work of your hands. So he says, you know what, Lord, I need to take some time and think about prior days, and rather than thinking about the current days where he was distressed and overwhelmed and it just was a dark and difficult season, David says, I need to remember there are other days, other times in the past when, man, God, you were so faithful and you did something so incredible. 
and I saw you work in this really powerful way, and I saw you answer prayers, or I saw you do things. And look, all of us in this room, unless you just got saved 10 minutes ago, you have some history with God. And even if you just got saved 10 minutes ago, you have some history with God. A miracle just happened 10 minutes ago. That's a work of God, right? God has done works in all of our lives to some degree where we can look back and sort of meditate and remember the days behind us of the works of God in our own lives. And we can reflect, man, Lord, I remember, man, you did something incredible there. You did some awesome things. And Lord, the idea is you got a good track record. And God, you helped me out in that situation. Certainly you can handle this situation. Lord, you answered my prayers in that situation. You haven't changed. You can work the same in this situation. Lord, you've proven your faithfulness before in the days of old. And, and, and as we meditate on that and remember that, what does that do? That builds our faith, right? That's what builds our confidence for the thing we're currently overwhelmed with or the thing we're currently distressed and stressed out about is we realize God hasn't changed and I was overwhelmed, distressed, and struggling then and God worked. Nothing's changed here. I serve the same God. Just a few different details. And so that gives us a degree of confidence to have faith to trust the Lord in our current situation as we do that. And listen, even if you were to go so far and to say to me, well, no, I just, I can't think of anything, Tony. I just cannot think of anything. Well, then read your Bible because there are plenty of works from Genesis even to Psalm 143. Those are the works of God as well. And God's not a God of partiality. God parts red seas. God brings down walls of Jericho. God, you know, saves Daniel in the lion's den. God helps people in the fiery furnace. There are plenty of works of God to muse upon, to think upon the work of the hands of God and to realize, Lord, if you did that for them, you can do that for me in, in 2022, Lord. You can do that for me too. Look, that's what gave David the confidence to do what? Verse six, to pray. I spread out my hands to you. Lord, here I am, empty-handed, completely dependent. Lord, I am empty-handed, and I am in need, and I surrender. I spread out my hands to you. My soul longs for you like a thirsty land, the picturing like the land, just dry and thirsty, and it is longing for rain. It's longing for what it needs for survival, and that's the picture there, just longing for God to work longing for perhaps the, 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 the outpouring of God's spirit for your thirsty soul to just bring refreshment and renewal and crying out to God with that kind of dependency, but yet confidence and, and expectancy. Lord, I'm spreading out my hands, longing for you to work. Verse seven, he says, answer me speedily, O Lord. Hurry up, he says, for my spirit's failing here. Do not hide your face from me. Now, again, hiding the, the face would be a picture of turning away one's favor. When somebody would look upon you or look in their direction to see their face, the idea that when the face of the Lord was towards you, the Bible speaks in number six, that ironic blessing of may the Lord's face shine upon you. And the idea there is, again, how you know, maybe, maybe a, a parent's face shines upon their, they, their face lights up when they see their, their child or a grandparent, their face lights up. Oh, and, and it's the idea of favor and excitement. That you, that's what we want. We want God's face to shine upon us. And the opposite of that would be if we're doing things in a way where for some reason God would turn his favor away from us. And, and David says, Lord, please, please, I need your favor 
shining upon my life, lest I be like those who go down into the pit. Lord, without you, I'm in the pits, literally, and I'm going to be in a dark place. I need the light of your countenance to guide my steps. Lord, I need to be face-to-face with you so that I can just literally have you just guide me with just the, the brief turn of your head or just looking in a direction. Okay, Lord, I see what you're you know, indicating to me without even a word. And this is the idea, just that closeness with the Lord so that we're not going down and finding ourselves in a dark place. And I love how he describes verse 8 here. He says these things, verse 8, "'Cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning, for in you I do trust.'" Cause me to know the way in which I should walk, for I lift up my soul to you. So David asks that the Lord would work. Notice he says twice here, Lord, because I trust you and my lift up of my soul to you in dependency. He says, Lord, cause me. In other words, make these things happen. Lord, I can't create this myself, but I'm asking that you would please supernaturally work in such a way by your spirit He says, first of all, verse 8, calls me to hear your loving kindness in the morning. When I begin each new day, Lord, when the morning dawns on a new day, the Bible says his mercies are new, what? Morning by morning. So when I begin each morning, Lord, calls me to hear. How do we hear from God? One of the primary ways certainly is through his word. It's not the only way, but certainly one of the primary ways we hear from God is through his word. So, Lord, through what you have spoken, speak to me, cause me to hear your voice conveying to me. And what did he want to hear? Lord, cause me to hear your loving kindness. Help me to hear your loving voice in the morning saying things to my spirit. Cause your spirit to bear witness with my spirit that I'm a child of God. Say things to me, Lord, through your word. Cause me to hear by by what I read promises and truths and things where I can sense, Lord, you love me and you're kind and you're talking to me here. Cause me to hear your loving kindness again because that sets your day on a whole different tone. Lord, you love me. And Lord, you're kind and boy, that encourages me. Thank you for saying something to me, Lord. Thank you for communicating just the phrase or two from me out of something I read. Lord, thank you. That that really, that's for me. I know that's for me this morning. And and to just hear the Lord's voice morning by morning, he wanted to hear that. David wanted to experience it. And he says, in connection to that, Lord, I don't want to just know that you love me and hear your loving kindness towards me. He says, I also want to know the way, verse 8, in which I should walk. Lord, I want you to direct my steps. Calls me. Calls me, Lord. I can't figure it out on my own, David's saying. I don't know, Lord, but please cause me to know the way in which I should walk. Show me the way, Lord. Give me guidance, direct my steps. And again, so many times God does that through the illumination of his word. Remember, we saw that so much in Psalm 119 as we went through it together, how God's word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. It's the way that he guides us, the way that he directs our steps. And and David just longed for that, Lord, I don't know which way to go. And perhaps you may not this evening, but pray that prayer. Lord, cause me, help me to know the way in which I should walk. For I lift up my soul to you. He says, verse nine, deliver me, O Lord, from my enemies. Set me free, Lord, from these enemies, these things that are enemies in my lives, these people who are enemies in David's life, for in you I take shelter, or I, I look to you for refuge and protection. 
He then prays again, verse 10, Lord, now he says, I don't want to just know the way in which I should walk. It's one thing to know the way to go, right? You could, you could ask me this evening, hey, could you tell me, because I left my cell phone at home and I can't use the maps button, could you tell me, like the old days, how to get from here to wherever? And I go, okay, what's you going to do? You're going to make a right out of the parking lot here. You're going to go up. You're going to hang a left there on New Road. Or, of course, you can't. You can only hang a right there. I'm already wrong. Don't follow me. That's why you should follow the Lord. Illustrations always break down. Somebody can tell you the way to go, but then don't you have a decision to choose to follow that and to go in that way, or you could choose to go a completely different way? You can go your way, or you could just choose to do nothing at all. And you may know the way, but you may choose to just stay put and not even do anything. So you can go the wrong way, or you could just do nothing. And the same thing with God's will. God shows us. God wants to direct us. God wants to guide us. Sometimes we need, Lord, show me the way. I want to know the way in which I should walk. But then David says, but Lord, I realize that I also have an act of obedience that I'm responsible for. I have a step of faith that I have to take. I need to have a willing spirit to walk things out, to follow what you're directing me to do. So he says, verse 10, teach me, notice, not to know your will, but what does he say there? Do. Lord, teach me how to do your will. There's a difference between knowing and doing. And a lot of times we make the mistake, just almost, it's almost kind of somewhat subconsciously. And I feel like the longer we're a Christian, the the more it actually gets fuzzy in this area. We think just because we know what God's word says that we're doing it. And that's not necessarily true. That's why the Bible says not just to be a hearer, but to be a doer of the word. And sometimes we know what God's will may be, but our struggle is not in knowing, it's in doing. And so David says, Lord, Teach me, teach me how to do your will, your will generally, and teach me how to do your will in that when you clearly show me the way or show me something that is your will, that I just do it, no pun intended there, (laughs) that I just do it, Lord, that I walk it out. Teach me how to do that, Lord. I want to learn how to be someone who follows your will and does your will. Why? He says, for you are my God. You're my God, Lord. You're in control of my life. I want to do your will. Your will is what's best for my life. So teach me how to do your will, to be obedient to you, to follow your will, to walk it out. For your spirit, he says, is good. Lead me in the land of uprightness. Notice, Lord, your spirit is good. The spirit of the Lord is good. Now, that is such a wonderful, I have that phrase underlined there just because of the simple fact that so often the spirit of God gets a really bad rap, doesn't he? I mean, we see things done in Christianity, sadly, sometimes, and, you know, look, some of it is, is biblical ignorance. Some of it is, uh, you know, learned behaviors from people's experiences and, you know, perhaps particular, you know, church upbringings or whatever. And certainly there are many wonderful things the Word of God reveals as far as experiences that we can have with the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And these are all beautiful, wonderful things. The Bible says, let all things be done decently in order with harmony and unity, the idea is, in a way that they you know, operate beautifully and the goodness of God is manifest through the person of His Spirit, His power and the experiences that we can receive from the Holy Spirit, His guidance and His direction and the things that the Spirit of God does. 
But sadly, sometimes we see some things that are done and kind of hyper-emotionalism or learned behaviors. And then if we could just be very candid on the, there are extremes to everything, right? Just like there are very poor extremes of people who are completely dead right and dry, crusty Christians who want to have no openness to the Holy Spirit and his ministry at all. And that's very extreme and unfortunate and wrong. And then you have far extremes, sadly, even of some believers and church gathering where people just to extremes do some really peculiar, odd and awkward stuff. And of course, that's what gets all the press and that's what people hear about or maybe a person experiences. And the errant thing in that is they just, they, it's another form of really like, if I could use the term, you just kind of stereotyping, you know, becoming almost in a sense prejudice towards certain things in Christianity. Look, if you have one bad experience, uh, how can I be generic here? If you have one bad experience with a Chinese person, I don't know, is there a Chinese person? Does that mean all Chinese people are bad? Well, you're foolish if you do that. Because the next day you may have one bad experience with a Caucasian person. I mean, all Caucasian people are bad. I mean, and Sometimes we have one bad experience or we see something in a church or we see one Christian do something and, and they're doing it in the representation of the spirits leading them to do this or to behave that way or you know, just act bizarre maybe. And, and we, whoa, 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 if that's the spirit of God, I don't want anything to do with that. Well, listen, let, let's always remember something. The Bible says the spirit of the Lord is good. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one, all God. Equal in nature, all the same attributes, all three persons. Is, is God the Father not good? Does, are you awkward and uncomfortable with God the Father? I don't want to be open to the Father in heaven. He might do something weird. I don't want to be open to Jesus. He might do something weird or bizarre. Or I don't want to be completely open to Jesus. But yet, why do we translate that to the Holy Spirit? Do you see what I'm saying? The, the Spirit of God is not going to do anything that's inconsistent with the Father, the Son. He works in power and beauty and harmony and does wonderful things and good things that we need in our lives as believers and that we need in the church just as much as the Father and the Son. And so we have to be very careful that we don't make the mistake. Too often the Spirit of God gets a, a bad rap, a poor rap, and people want to and that's why the Bible warns, don't quench the Spirit. We need to be open to the Spirit of the Lord. He is good, and we need His power. We need His present ministry in the church. We need His work in our lives. We, we need Him to be the one to lead us and to guide us, to let His gifts operate in and through our lives and among the church. He is good and does wonderful things, and so we have to be very careful that we don't just you know, associate something that we saw or we don't agree with and, and kind of in a stereotypical way just negatively think about the Spirit of God. David says, Lord, your Spirit, he is good. So lead me, Lord. Lead me by your Spirit. And, and what does the Spirit do as well? Verse 11, this is one of his wonderful ministries. He says, revive me, O Lord. Revive me, O Lord. Awaken me again, Lord. I, I've dried up. I've become weak in my soul. He says, for your righteousness sake, bring my soul out of trouble. Again, David said, my soul's in a troubled condition. It's in a condition that it's not supposed to be in. And Lord, I need you to revive my soul out of this trouble. And sometimes our soul's in a troubled condition and we need, Lord, revive me. Revive me. 
And one of the ways God revives us is by the power and the ministry of his spirit. He awakens us and renews us and brings spiritual renewal to our lives. And notice, revive me, O Lord, not that I can look spiritual or not that I can say, yeah, the Lord used me to start a revival or not that I can say, hey, we're having revival meetings at our church because we're, we're going to start a revival. The spirit of God starts a revival. That's the only way any revival has ever happened in human history. When you see revivals break out, they're directly connected to things like the word of God being esteemed among God's people, people having humble, repentant hearts and contrition before the Lord, people seeking God in prayer, and then sovereignly and by the grace of God, the spirit of the Lord brings a reviving work to a Christian or to a few Christians, to a church or to the body of Christ on a larger level. Why? Because he, David says here, revive me, O Lord, for your namesake. Because see, when revival happens, typically what's going on is you can't explain what's happening. You don't know how it happened. The reason why is because it's a revival. It's just a spirit revival taking place in such a way that for God's namesake, Jesus is being honored. People's eyes are being turned to the Lord. Study church history. Look at some of the revivals that have happened. And it's very clear the results of those things and oftentimes what preceded it. Uh, and many times different than what we try and do if we think we're contriving a revival. That's why we need the Spirit's ministry. He's the one that can revive us. He's the one that revives his church. He says, verse 12, in your mercy, cut off my enemies, Lord. Just please, Lord, deal with them. I, I can't fix the problems and destroy all those who afflict my soul, for I am your servant. You know, David was just so comfortable with God. I mean, he Praise so spiritual and genuine. Lord, cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning. But could you cut off and kill all my enemies in the meantime? <laughs> it's just, well, David, just tell us how you feel there. I mean, just so, you know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of a good, healthy relationship between like a father and, and their child. You know, the way families talk to one another, right? I mean, the, the way we talk to one another as families because we're so comfortable Right? I mean, we, we just we say very open, very direct, and honest things. Or the way a kid talks to their parents. You know, they say something real sweet and nice, and the next minute they just, you know, blatantly, and by the way, give me 20 bucks, Dad. Just, just, just so direct. And I love David. Just, he, he just relates to God in such a fatherly way, like a child. Lord, I'm your servant. Help me out here. Deal with my enemies, Lord. Psalm 144, another Psalm of David. He says, Blessed be the Lord, my rock. Now, we're going to see this is a psalm picturing God like a warrior coming to our fence. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Now, David here refers to God as his rock, and the picture there is God's stability, immovable rock, you know, something that is strong, something that's immovable, something that can be built upon, hidden behind. And he says, God, you are my rock. And many times we see God pictured in this way of being a solid rock. The Bible calls him the rock of ages. We have that beautiful hymn, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. And so he says, Lord, you are my rock. And notice in the midst of war, and David was very familiar with war and battle because that's what David was, right? David was a very prominent warrior in his time. And so because of that, and again, in today's day and age, David would kind of be like the elite forces. 
I mean, David and his mighty men going out doing hand-to-hand combat. I mean, and typically those who were like green berets, right, or Navy SEALs, these are people who go undergo intense training to have special skills and abilities to fight in combat and to be able to defeat and overcome. And, and it, un, they undergo a lot of training for such. But David's training was very unconventional. David wasn't a very successful, effective warrior, as were his mighty men around him, but they had no formal training, right? David was trained in a very unconventional way. How was he trained? By God. Do you see what David says there? He says, blessed be the Lord my rock, who, God, trains my hands for war and my fingers, the idea with skill and agility for battle. David said, Lord, you're the one who can train my hands and my fingers to succeed in battle. And as I deal with the wars, I like that. David's looking to God to give him supernatural ability, skill, agility to do things that he needed to do. And I remember reading this particular psalm many, many years ago when I, it's actually when I, when I first got married and I got married at 20 years old. So real quick, the reality set in that I needed to find myself like a man job, like, like one of those real man jobs because I had man bills and man responsibilities and a, a, a man's wife now. So I realized, oh my God, I got to get like one of those, like I couldn't just work. I could get like a man job now. And the company that I went to work where I got hired at was a glass company. We did everything from you know, plate glass windows like this to auto glass to you know, mirrors to windows to all this kind of stuff. But I had never worked with glass before and cut glass and carried big you know, sheets of glass, some of them you know, 60 inches high and you know, uh, you know, up to 10 foot long. And you're messing with the stuff and working with this stuff. And I had no clue what I was doing. And I remember... I remember getting hired and being terrified, thinking I'm one of two things. I'm going to provide for my wife through this, or I'm going to die. And she's going to be widowed real quick, because I have no clue how to work. And, and I remember this particular verse. You can talk about the Lord letting you hear his loving kindness in the morning. I was like panicking and paranoid. And I tell you, I read that verse, and that was me hearing the word of the Lord from my heart that morning. I'll train your hands. I I will give you skills in your fingers and your hands to handle the things that you need to do to handle the dangerous, you know, object of glass and cutting glass and moving glass and sanding glass, and and I'll give you those skills and a bill. I'll give them to you supernaturally, And, and the Lord faithfully did that. Only got stitches one time, just a little small stitch area. That's all, one time. But but again, how wonderful to know that we can look to God to train us, to give us abilities for things. God can train us to do things that we don't know how to do. God can give us supernaturally abilities and training in unconventional ways to have skills and aptitudes and abilities to handle the things that we just have no clue how to do ourselves. He can give us those aptitudes, and and what a wonderful thing. Lord, I don't know what I'm doing. Train me, Lord. I don't know how to handle this battle. I don't want to get destroyed, Lord, so help me to be victorious by you training me. He calls God there my loving kindness and my fortress, my high tower and my deliverer, my shield, and the one in whom I take refuge or protection from the danger, who subdues my peoples under me. So notice the very personal language of David there. He calls God 
not only one who is loving and kind and a deliverer, but he says, my loving kindness, my fortress. God, you're my high tower and my deliverer and my shield. It's one thing if God is those things, and that's true. But to David, it was personal. Lord, you're my shield. I know you as my shield in my life. I know you as the loving, and this was David here expressing how these were personal things in regards to him and his relationship with God. He says in the end of verse two there, who subdues my people under me. No doubt David was describing how God brought the transition, even as David ultimately ascended to the throne. Because remember, anointed king of Israel, but rejected for a time, being persecuted and chased by Saul. And then David gradually was kind of brought into the place of the throne. Remember, for the first seven years, it was just two tribes that embraced David as, as their ruler after God removed Saul. It took God a while, but eventually God dethroned Saul. God removed Saul. It was a work of God eventually. But even after that, the first seven years, there was only a small remnant of the nation of Israel that embraced David as their king. And then later on, the remainder of the tribes unified and rallied behind David and embraced the call of God upon his life to be their next leader among them. But David here recognized, he said, Lord, you are the one, look what he says, who subdues my people under me. In other words, you're the one, Lord, who prompts people to submit to my role of leadership. David understood that, that, that it was not his role to subdue people. That's not leadership. Leadership is influence. Leadership is not controlling people, forcing people, making people obey you, throwing around your authority. That's not leadership. If you have to do that, you've lost leadership. If you have to make people submit to you, you've lost influence. You've lost the capacity to lead if you have to force people. And David, I don't, I'm not, and David, look, David knew how to make people be subdued. Would you agree? What did I just say, David? David was a warrior, man. If David wanted to whip out the sword and get people to subdue and, and submit to him, he could have done that very easily by force. But David in meekness said, Lord, I'm not going to do that to people. If you're calling me to be their next king, their next ruler, you will sovereignly work and move in their hearts in a way whereby my authority will be respected and honored by them because they'll see it's of you. And they'll appreciate who I am and my role among them. And that's exactly what happened. In time, people began to rally behind David. And again, that's true leadership. When the Lord causes people to submit and to follow the leadership, that's something, again, leadership is something that the Lord gives to a person, not something that someone has to hijack or exert with force against others. He says, verse 3, Lord, in fact, what is man? The idea is, what is any man? that you take knowledge of him, that you would condescend to know us, or the son of man, that you're mindful of him. The idea is that you keep track, that God remains mindful and aware of the ideas, everything that we do. David's just describing, as we saw back in Psalm 8, the idea of just the insignificance of man. It blew David's mind when he thought about it. He's like, Lord, I can't even believe, as great as you are, we are just such insignificant things on this earth. Lord, what is man that, that you know everything about us, that you want to be involved in our lives, and, and that you remain mindful of everything going on in our lives? And this, I think this just blew David's mind. It humbled him. And it also really blessed him because he realized, wow, talk about the greatest king of all. God, you are king of kings, and yet you know what's going on in my life. 
and you're mindful and you care and you're aware of the things happening in my existence. And I think it just impressed David, the wonderful power God had, but yet how personal and loving he was. He says, Lord, man is like a breath. And his days are like a passing shadow. The picture there is just the the vanity of life. How life is just like a vapor. It's just like a blink of the eye. You know, often, again, we we don't like to think much about tombstones, but when you tombstone, there's a birth date and there's a little dash, right? And then there's the date that a person passes. And life really is, and here's the thing, from an eternal perspective, really just like a little dash, On earth, if we are blessed with 40 years or 60 years or 80 years, that seems like a substantial amount of time for us because we're living life one day at a time. We live in the realm of the temporal, right? And so that's why there's always that challenge for us with the Lord. A day is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day. And so we we struggle because God dwells in the eternal. So he dwells outside of the realm of time. So in comparison to God who is eternal, David says, Lord, man is like just like one breath, like a passing shadow. That is a comparison to eternity because that's the realm God's in, the eternal dimension, a timeless eternal dimension. He has always been, currently is, and always will be. And our life really from God's viewpoint is just like a blink of an eye. It's like a breath. Seems long to us, but it's so brief and temporary, which means that's why we should, as the Bible told us in Psalms, number our days. That we'd have a heart of wisdom to make the most of every day, because life is truly short. And you know, the longer you go, the more you really start kind of sensing that reality as you progress in life. There, there kind of, you know, it comes that stage. I'm, you know, by the grace of God, I've come to that stage where you you just kind of realize there's more now in the rearview mirror than there is in the road of front of you. I mean, I can, well, I don't know, again, because I don't do it. I could juice and veggie and every, and I could do everything. It's not, it's barring a miracle of God, more than likely there's more in the rearview mirror than there is in front of me. And so sometimes you, you evaluate and you realize, well, okay, how much of that breath do I got left? How much is there left? And Lord, I want to redeem the time. I want to live In light of that reality, Lord, I want to make the most of whatever time I have left as my days are now passing like a shadow. He says, God, please bow down your heavens. In other words, Lord, come down, help, get involved. Touch the mountains and they shall smoke. Flash forth lightning and scatter them. Shoot out your arrows and destroy them. Stretch out your hand from above. Rescue me and deliver me out of great waters from the hand of of foreigners, that is those outside the land of Israel. These are people who don't belong from outside coming in, whose mouth speak, notice, lying words, and whose right hand is a hand of falsehood. You know, David, again, just using poetic language, asking for a powerful intervention of God, picturing God on his throne in heaven, bowing down the heavens, parting them, and just coming down with great power to act on behalf of his servant. And almost like the picture there at Sinai, the mountains smoking and lightning scattering and coming down, God stretching out his hand. He says, God, please stretch out, he says, verse seven, your hand from above and rescue me, deliver me. That's a great prayer sometimes, Lord. I just, would you please, you gotta get me out of this. 
You know, perhaps that's a word from the Lord for some of you tonight. Just you're in a spot where you, Lord, I, you got to rescue me. You got to get me out of this. I don't know how I'm going to get out of this, but Lord, I need you to stretch down your hand and get me out of the floodwaters that I am in from those who are using lying words and things that are just causing problems. Interesting, he speaks of those who not only lie, but whose right hand is a hand of falsehood. They give the impression that they're speaking one thing, but they're just really lying and manipulating to try and bring someone down otherwise. Again, David, he's, he's the master of shifting, huh? Look at verse 9. He goes from, Lord, bring the smoke from heaven to verse 9. And I will sing a new song to you, O God, on a harp of ten strings. So God does like guitars. I will sing praises to you, to the one who gives salvation to kings, deliverance to kings, who delivers David his servant from the deadly sword. Lord, you spare my life. You bring deliverance and salvation for me from those things that would destroy me. And so in light of that, he says, Lord, I, wanna, I just want to sing praise to you. I just want to lift my voice to you and give worship unto you. And notice, again, we've seen this phrase many times, I will sing a new song to you. And the idea there of a new song is a fresh expression. So a new song can literally be a song we've never sung before. And so therefore, we're really thinking about the words, and, and, and we should at times have new songs from the Lord and the Spirit-directed you know, gift of being able to write music and compose a new song. But sometimes, it may not be a brand new song in a literal sense. It just may be a song that we know that because of maybe what we're going through or what we're currently experiencing, that song has a whole new meaning to us. And I think we all know that as Christians, right? Where all of a sudden, you're singing a song, and maybe it's an old song. But all of a sudden, that song now, because of what's going on in your life, those words are resonating with you in a way like they never have before. And that's like a brand new song from your heart. It's a fresh expression. Boy, Lord, that's exactly how I'm feeling right now with a tear going down my face and just really worshiping God with that fresh expression through that song. David says, verse 11, rescue me, Lord, from the hand of foreigners whose mouth speaks lying words, whose right hand... Again, he says, is a right hand of falsehood, that our sons may be as plants grown up in their youth, that our daughters may be as sculpted pillars, sculpted in palace style, that our barns may be full. The idea is speaking here of plenteous abundance, prospering, supplying all kinds of produce. Lord, bring blessing and cause us to prosper, that our sheep may bring forth thousands and tens of thousands in our fields, that our oxen may be well laden, that there be no breaking in. The idea is invasion, animals coming in and harming our flocks and herds, or no going out, stealing and taking them away, that there be no outcry in our streets because they had been invaded. Happy are the people, he says, who are in such a state. The idea is experiencing the blessing of God upon their life, and happy are the people whose God is the Lord. So as David pleads for God to bless and God to prosper, certainly he asks directly for God to bring things that would bring abundance and monetary blessing. But do you see the first thing that mattered to David in verse 12? He, he, the thing that he saw as the greatest blessing, verse 12, he says, that our sons may be as plants grown up in their youth and our daughters may be like pillars sculpted in palace style. He wanted to see God's blessing on his children, his children's children, the next generation of people, because that's what's eternal. 
And that's the primary thing God's concerned about, more than flocks and herds and material blessings and possessions. Those are all wonderful things, but those things aren't what's eternal. They're not what have the greatest impact. And so David's first concern, verse 12, Lord, that our sons, that they would be like plants grown up in their youth. The picture there is that healthy plants that are flourishing, plants that are growing, that our sons would be healthy, that they would be productive, that they would be fruitful. That was David's prayer. Lord, may our sons be productive, healthy, fruitful young men. Lord, make them like that, Lord. Help them not to be unproductive. Help them not to be unfruitful. Help them not to be unhealthy. Instead, Lord, like a fruitful, flourishing plant, help them to be well-rooted. Help them to be prosperous and productive and abundant and fruitful. What a great prayer for our sons. What a great prayer for young men. Lord, make them productive and fruitful. Help them to be individuals who will end up being healthy in the way that they live their lives, healthy and a blessing to society. And Lord, our daughters, that they, he says, would be like pillars sculpted in Palestine. The picture there, what do pillars do? They provide stability to the structure. And they also added beauty, right? The pillars were sculpted. They added beauty to the structure. And so what's he saying? Lord, in the same way we want our sons to be like fruitful plants, productive and healthy, Lord, for our daughters, may they be like pillars. Lord, may our daughters, may they be stable instead of unstable. Lord, may they be stable and beautiful. And may they bring beauty and structure and stability and bring strong influence to uphold what's good and valuable. And what a great prayer to pray for our daughters, to, to pray, Lord, give us stable daughters. Help them to grow up to be stable, Lord. May they be good influencers. May they beautify situations by who they are. May they have an, an, a beauty that they add because of the way that they live. And David says, man, happy are people who get to enjoy that kind of a state, whose God is the Lord. To just know God, he says, there is a happiness that the world out there doesn't know anything about. It just doesn't. And what a blessed privilege to be able to know that by knowing God. Let's stand together and let's pray and